Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this group and the, the gift that they are uh, to Tammy and I and the gift that they are to this church. Um, I pray that you continue by your spirit to knit them together, to um, encourage them to love one another, encourage them and give them hearts that are zealous to uh, outdo one another in good works. Father, this morning we pray that you would impress upon us um, the joy that you have in your people and that you would um, teach us to delight in your joy this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Many, many moons ago, Chris Brody preached through uh, Psalm 65. And one of the points that he made uh, was that worship involves singing, and even shouts of joy. And some of the stuff that he brought out um, was concerning God's joy. And I thought it would be interesting this morning to kind of look at that, the joy of God. We, typically when you think of God sovereign over everything, all things according to His plan, I, I, I fear sometimes that we think of robot God, you know, that there's joy going on over there. Why? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, anyway, let me get back to this. Um, you going to be all right over there? Okay. See, when you get older, your eyes get harder to use. And so you get technology to make this the words bigger on your screen to and then it just all goes haywire whenever okay so chris brody (laughs) had taught this thing he talked about the joy of god and i and i thought that would be good for us to go through when when we think of god as you know sovereign we, we we do a lot of the sovereign god stuff around here and we should and he is but i think many times in our heads we get this idea that God's just up there, this control guy, you know, just everything, control, and all this. And there's no emotion in God. And we miss the fact that we have emotion because it derives from Him, right? He is a person. In fact, He's more than a person. He's three persons in one, which is really perfected emotion, if you want to get to it. The inner relationship of the, tw- of the Trinity is a, is a pretty amazing thing, and there's a lot of emotion there. Here's some of the scriptural evidence for that. In in Jeremiah 32:41, he says, "I will rejoice. I will rejoice." This is God speaking. "I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul." You think God that way? How about this one? Uh, Isaiah 62:5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He compares that to what we consider the happiest time in human relationship, this, you know, cultural thing. God compares his own joy in rejoicing over his people that way. Um, Zephaniah, it's there. 
Trust me. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Who will, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God losing it. <laughs> loud singing. Do you think of God that way? Uh, really, I mean, do we ever just rest? He's emotional about His people. Do you, do you get that? Do you think that? I don't think that normally. Yes, sovereign Lord, if your will, this happened, if your will. And those are true right statements, but there's heart involved there with God. I don't think we get that. Um, Jesus talked about the joy of God. Look at Luke 15. Luke 15. Jesus talked about the joy of God. In the parable of the lost sheep, in verse 7, He says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Of course, that's a, the last leg of that is showing how ridiculous that would be. If there are 100 who repent, God rejoices over all of them because they all need it, right? Um, but the joy there is huge. More joy in heaven over one sinner, one sinner who repents. Um, what about this one in the next parable, the parable of the lost coins? Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's rejoicing there? Who's rejoicing? God is, because it's before the angels. He's not talking about the angels rejoicing. He's talking about God rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And then probably one of the biggest statements on the joy of God um, is the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the two lost sons. I think it's probably better uh, stated. Jesus makes the point in much more extreme terms in this, in this parable. First of all, who's he talking to? The Pharisees. He's surrounded by tax collectors and sinners, because tax collectors usually collect sinners as well, um, he's surrounded by them, and the Pharisees are complaining, right? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. That's the audience. That's who he's talking to. And then he responds with those two short parables, and then goes into this rather long one, starting in verse 11. Let's read through it. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out 
to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. We'll stop there. Um, one, of the, one of the smart guys that I like to read on these kinds of things is a um, Middle Eastern scholar. He grew up there and, and went to college there and, and uh, knows the language, knows the culture. And he, he, go, he takes this parable from a cultural perspective. <laughs> And he, he sets it in relief to the background of what's going on in the culture. The Middle Eastern culture is one of shame and honor. That's what, that's, we don't really understand shame in our culture. But they have shame and honor there. That's kind of what drives everything. Um, and when he, when he starts going through this parable, he points out, uh, well, we know some of this already. How did they distribute land? How did inheritance work in Israel? We, we went through some of this in, in the Old in Leviticus through lineage. And so, when the son goes to the dad, this is the younger son, two sons here. How did that normally work? The inheritance. The older son. The older son gets typically two thirds of it, and the younger son would get one third. And this is, or the, the remaining third would be divided among the other siblings. Here we have two, so it'd be one third. Just so your math works out in the probate, is in your head. Um, what is he doing? Give me what's due to me now. What does that say to the father? Or, you're dead to me, or, I wish you were dead because I want your stuff. Right? Is that honoring to the father, or is that a shameful thing to the father? It's a shameful thing. And what would you expect in a situation like this the father to do to this younger son because of this public request that he be dead and he get his stuff? Go work on the fields. Go work in the fields? <laughs> we'll hear some of that later. Uh, go work in the fields. Uh, what else? Deny it. Deny it? Maybe take him out to the square, beat him publicly for doing something like this? Gathered, he uh, gathered all he had. What is, what is he doing here? He's taking, he's taking all of his stuff and go and leaving, right? Um, what is in coming to in saying in what's coming to me? What does that say about the relationship between the father and the son? Is there one? I don't want you, I want your stuff, tends to betray or reveal that the stuff is more important than the relationship with the Father, right? That in fact, there is no relationship with the Father. I wish you were dead because I want your stuff. What would the Pharisees, how would the Pharisees react to this, do you think? They hear a guy, a Jewish boy, responding this way to his father. How would they respond, do you think? Stone him. Stone him? Well, that was their answer for everything, yes. <laughs> they would be greatly offended at this. Um, how does the father respond to this? He doesn't stone him. What does he do? He gives, to he gives it to him. Is that an honorable thing to do or a shameful thing to do? How would the Pharisees respond to that action by the Father? It's a gracious thing, in a way. Okay. To give it 
given given what the request was, the slap in the face and, and right. trumping of stuff over the relationship. Yeah, good word, trumping. <laughs> stuff over relationship. It's kind of like if you, I don't know, if you if you see a a parent with a little toddler who's throwing a fit, and the parent just keeps giving them candy right. to try to pacify. It almost has that kind of feel. Why are you doing this? Why are you spoiling your child? It looks shameful, right? Like that the child is giving their way, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. We would we would look at that and say you're ruining the kid by doing this. So right, but he's acting like a two-year-old. Yeah, so by this point, though, I mean, the bad part is just like, don't know what I can do. He's going to do what he wants to do. Well, the dad could do a lot of other things other than what he did do. And yet he decides to respond graciously. Well, he doesn't respond verbally or something. Right, so we don't know where the heart is. Right. He divided his property between them. The father should have taken the son out and publicly beat him to regain his honor from the great insult of the younger son. Instead, he replies, uh, complies with the request. All right, so you see verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a, a journey into a far country, and there he squandered this one-third in reckless living. Um, if he's gathering all he has for a journey, what's he doing? I mean, the property that the father is giving him would it be cash and fungible goods or what? Livestock. Livestock. Appreciated stock. Some bonds, maybe some <laughs> junk bonds. Land. Land. So in order to take a journey, he's got to fire sale it, right? I'm leaving in a week. What can I get for this? Not only does he act dishonorably to get the property from the father while he's still alive, he acts dishonorably by selling it cheap. What he has from the Father, he has sold cheaply. Right? Honorable? Shameful. Not only that, <laughs> he takes this cheap fire sale money, goes into a Gentile country with his inheritance of Israel, and then does what? He squanders it. Doesn't get top dollar. Takes the third of the third, if we're going to fire sell it, maybe less, and then squanders it, blows it, in partying. That's Esau, isn't it? Take the birthright and take it for a bowl of porridge. Porridge. Bean soup, lentils, whatever. He's called a prodigal because he wasted it. One-third of what the father had built in wealth is spent like water on restless living in a Gentile land. What does that speak to? What, what does it speak to? He's just thinking what he's been taught and, and uh, his parents values he takes what his parents have poured into him and does the exact opposite. It looks a lot like us. It looks a lot like us. And at this time, it looks a lot like Israel. I mean, he's talking to the Pharisees about 
the lineage from Abraham and the word of God that they've had in the first five verses of Romans 9. Mm-hmm. And they've completely squandered it. They've taken a, a right turn and made it all about them and promoted themselves out of it. Is it about Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees, or is it Israel, the tax collectors and sinners that he's talking about, you think? In what context? About the squandering it, going to a Gentile land and the, the, the prodigal. Who's, who's the prodigal in this story? I'd probably say the tax collectors and sinners. That's what we would naturally think, right? How do we know that he was poured into, like we said, he squandered everything and he was... Well, because of the nature of the father later, it seems to fit the model of a ideal um, Hebrew parent. And so they're commanded to, to train up their children. They're commanded to uh, teach them the word going out, coming in. Um, those are things that are associated with, with good fathering in Israel. And he's set up in the parable as the ideal father yes I don't know I, think, I guess I just don't really see it right now okay maybe you will later we'll, we'll work on it later then um, and when he had spent everything a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the famine, is that his fault or no? No. Well, he went where the famine is. <laughs> okay. But when he... But can you... I mean... Granted, we have those, those, those uh, you know, advertisements you get through email. This, this guy is rich, and he knows what the economy is going to do. I mean, barring one of those economic prophetic guys of impending doom of the American economy, um, how would he know that a famine was coming? It depends on his carbon footprint. His carbon footprint. <laughs> there it is. Um, we don't know. I mean, there, there wasn't probably any economic forecasters. Uh, back then, maybe there were. Um, he walks in. He's not. He didn't bring the famine with him. It wasn't like Jonah, right? Um, so the famine happens. Not his fault. I think that shows though a common thing that happens in life. There are some things that are our fault, right? Or our responsibility, and there are some things that are just part of life. But often when we're not faithful in the things that we are supposed to be faithful with, when those things that come along that we can't help, natural disasters or famines right. or whatever, um, it, 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 it's, it's an incredible disaster spiritually and financially and everything because we haven't, we haven't been faithful right. in the good times. He had a bunch of money at one point. Yeah. That he got in a wrong way, even, but yep. and yet wasted it all. And then when the famine came, he really had nothing. So th- there are some consequences that are our fault, not being prepared for, or going about things in the wrong way. Yeah, going about things in the wrong way that that has consequences. And there are other things that just happen in life. We live in a fallen world, and 
that, that devastate us. That's, I think, what's in view here first, um, well, at least here, that the famine was not the younger son's fault. But what's his response? What's his response? What does he do? To the famine. To the famine. The response to the famine. He sold himself. Came when he came to hired himself. himself. Well, first, he hires himself out, sort of. I mean, what would happen a lot of times, I don't know, it, it, and I haven't done it, but I hear people that have gone to like India and places like that. When you walk down the street, uh, the, the people who are desperate, especially the children, will cling to you, right? Even put their hands in your pockets to see if they can get something out of your, you know I mean? Clinging to you, desperate, hungry. I don't think it's that way in Spain. Um, yet, um, but, but that's the idea. When there's a famine and there's major hunger, they find somebody with some means and they'll cling to them. And that's the idea here. He, he knit himself or clung to a, somewhat of means. He was a Gentile. And the picture here is the guy's like, go, get away, push him away. Finally, this guy keeps bugging me, go feed my pigs. Just go. Feed. And he's not even paying him, really, because it talks about him trying to, he, he wanted to eat the pods of the pigs. Now, that's the food. I mean, they eat. Not, those are not digestible by human uh, systems. You can't really process pig pods. Um, so that's pretty... Desperate times there, right? As a Jew, tending to pigs in a Gentile country, honorable or shameful? Shameful. Shameful. Um, We've talked about that in Leviticus quite a bit, about the clean and unclean animals. You have a ritually impure thing. You have morally impure here with what he wasted his money on. We find out a little bit later from the older son. But you have ritually impure in that he's daily with these unclean animals, never sacrificing, never going to the temple, never being cleansed, daily unclean. So much so that he desires to eat what the unclean animal is eating and can't do it. That's, that's a desperate situation. Seventeen. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? What does that tell us about the generosity of the father? First of all, what are the hired hands? What are those guys? Are they at the upper end of the social ladder? They're the lower guys, right? The daily guys get paid by day. They live day to day. Uh, you remember the parable of Jesus talks about the, the day laborer and, and the, how they, the wages at the, at the end of the day. So they're the lower. They depend on those things. We've talked about in Leviticus. Pay those guys. Don't delay in paying those guys. It's theft if you don't. And yet, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? We're talking about a very generous man, right? And it it feeds into why I think he's pictured as the ideal father, the ideal um, Israelite here. But I perish here with hunger. 
All right. 18. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, I'm, you know, I'm still your son. You owe me stuff. We have a good family relationship. Yeah, I've blown it, but you owe me forgiveness. What does he say here? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Sounds like repentance to me. What is he planning to do? He goes back to the town. Everybody knows what's going on. In a culture like this, because he's set up in the parable as being the, the main guy in the town, the richest guy in the town, that kind of thing, everybody kind of works for him. He's the brookshires of you know, the, the town. Um, for, for now. Um, uh, he's set up as being the, the honor, the shame that he suffers in their mind is shame that the whole town suffers. And so what, would, what he would expect to happen on the long journey back is to prepare himself to go into town and be ridiculed by the whole town. They'd throw food at him. They would point the finger and scream and all this kind of stuff. And, and the word would get to the father, your, your younger son is here, and he would probably not see him for a few days and let him bear the shame of what he's done publicly so that he could get his honor back for what the son has done. That's what's expected to happen. That's what the son is preparing himself to endure. Ridicule, rejection, marginalization because of the shame he's brought on the father, which in turn brings shame on the town. Hebrew boys don't do this. Right? That's what he's expecting. And when he does see his father, what would he be expected to do? What do you think? Beg. Grovel at the feet of his father. Forgive me, I'll work for you the rest of my life to try to pay back what I've done. That's what's expected. You owe me now. You need to work for me to restore what you wasted out of my estate. And so what does he do in verse 20? And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt indignation, hatred, joy, compassion for him with passion, with emotion, seeing this son coming, felt compassion. And how do we know that? He ran. He ran. And embraced and kissed this pig-smelling, gunk-covered, rebellious son. He ran to him. Now, Middle Eastern men wear dresses those long little robes, and 
It is a, and we've talked about this also in Leviticus, there is something about covering the legs and the ankles, keeping those covered, that is a sign of honor. If you show your ankles, then that's dishonor, right? Um, if you show your leg, well, that's just very shameful. The beaches we have today would be just shamefest. Um, so they're, they're used to covering themselves, having themselves covered. What does it take to run in a dress? You've got to hike it up. You've got to show some leg. And it's an old man. Do old men who are dignified, men of means, hike up their skirts and run? <laughs> Honor or shame? Shame. So the father sees the son far off. Right? He sees him far off. And the son should be bearing shame in the town. But the father bears the shame and runs through the town to the son. Robot? No. No. Middle Eastern men do not run. The robe, the word for robe in Hebrew is that which brings me honor. Uh, we remember the, the temple and the sacrifices and the amount of blood that was in the sacrifices. They would not even raise their robes to keep their robes out of the blood because of the, sh the possibility of shame. And yet here we have a nobleman running through the middle of town um, taking on the shame that the son should have borne. He runs to him and kisses him all over this stinking pig-smelling head and embraces him as he is covered with filth. And what does the son say? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, as high as it is to heaven, it's the level of my sin. All the way to heaven and against you. I've sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And was he right? What's different about his rehearsed speech and the one he actually gives? He doesn't finish, treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, the, the, one, one idea on that is that the father didn't let him finish, and that may be true. I think another idea on that is, what's the response to grace? Maybe the son remembered the character of his father mm. and realized it would be an insult to him to say such a thing. Yeah. The response to grace is, I'll work it. You know? It's thank you. It's thank you. I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the response is one of recognizing, no, you're not. But I give it anyway. Mm -hmm. 
Make me one of your hired servants is left out. He gets it. He gets grace. It would be an insult to the Father for him now to try and work to be worthy of the gift of the Father's grace. And the Pharisees, oh yeah, we get this. What do you think? You think I understand this? They never get it. Well, some of them do. Nicodemus kind of got it. Um, Their response to this would be, what in the world? This is an eye roller kind of moment for them. There's just no way this would happen. Why would you behave that way? That's dishonorable to behave that way to the son, right? They would expect him to work the rest of his life and the father to require that of him. But the Pharisees um, would be just completely blown away by this. It's foreign to their culture. Self righteous people don't get grace. Look at verse 22. What is the father's response to this statement of his son? But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, the best that which brings me honor. The best robe, the family robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Not only is it his joy, but it's a joy that spills over into the rest of the town. He's calling for a feast of the whole place. Bring it without delay, quickly, the family robe. It's a symbol of being identified with the family. What would the ring be? Usually it has kind of a signet kind of deal on it. It's a family identifier. Again, he's wearing it. He puts it on the younger son, which is an interesting issue. He puts it on the younger son, a symbol of his authority to act on behalf of the family. Shoes on his feet. Day laborers don't wear shoes. Sons wear shoes. The calf is fattened for very special occasions, weddings and those kinds of things, and yet he uses it here. My son was dead. That's a reference to the funeral that would have been held for him after he left. They would have presumed him dead to them. And the town celebrates. They enter into the father's joy. He is celebrating his grace to his son, and it overflows in generosity to the whole town. All right. Boy, it would be nice to stop there. Wouldn't that be great? Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. 
But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Where's the older son? Where's he originally? He's out in the field. What does it tell you about the relationship with the father? Who would the father normally call on to coordinate a party? To coordinate a feast? To do the management of that? He wouldn't handle that. He would normally call upon the older son to manage the property, to manage the feast. Son's out in the field. Doesn't call on him. Doesn't say, go get my son, I need him to do this. He comes in as an afterthought from the field. Here's somebody the Pharisees can finally appreciate. Right? He comes in, and he does not enter into the joy of the Father. The Pharisees get this. The Son is acting with honor. The Son gets it. This boy should be shamed. He should be ridiculed. He should be rejected. What does the Father do in response to that? Incidentally, is the action of the older son toward the father honorable or shameful? Mixed feelings about it. You have mixed feelings. It's shameful. It's shameful in the relationship. It may be some sort of honor as their culture set, sets up honor because of the way he views what should be happening to the younger son. But as to the relationship, it's a shameful thing. It's, I'm not going in. I don't care if my dad is joyful. I'm, I'm not going to honor this. Right? It's a shameful thing. But it's a shame that resonates well with the Pharisees. They can deal with this shame. Right? What does a father do in response to this shameful attitude by the older son? Fine, if he's going to do that, he can go get the house down the road. What does he do to him? He goes out to him, doesn't he? Doesn't change what the old, old right, has. right. He goes out to him, and he entreated him. Robotic? Is this a robotic response by the father? It's an emotional response. My son, what are you doing? This is your brother. Again, the father, the father does what is shameful by going to his son when the older son has dishonored the father by refusing to come in. He says to his father, Look, how about, father? <laughs> Look, these many years I have served you and never I 
I'm not like these other men, these tax collectors. I never disobeyed you. And I never, and you never, in response to my obedience, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Because of the externals. Yeah, so it's very workspace, whereas the younger son, uh, the relationship is now just purely grace and mercy. Mm. And the, the young son didn't do anything to deserve it. The mm. father showed him mercy and gave him grace. But the older son's still sitting there like, well, I've worked so hard, so I deserve it. In, of the three characters, who's the robot? The older son. The older son. Isn't this also the not true? Didn't the father just divide the property? Between them? Well, he did with the younger son. This, we're not told that he gave it to the older son. Okay. Well, did, did, am I wrong on that? Am I wrong? I could be wrong. I did it between them, so I didn't, I didn't know if that meant between the sons. That may be. It may be. Um, yeah, I did between them. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I misread that. Um, but also, if this older son knew the character of his father, if he had asked his father right. for, for a goat, goat, from the character we're shown in this story, sure. Would have gladly given it. But going back to the nature of this, the older son, he's being obedient. He knows, you know, presumably all the lingo, can regurgitate it to the father, uh, probably knows that, you know, hero Israel, the Lord is one. He knows the, he knows the creed. <laughs> he can recite all that stuff. But his heart is far away from the father. Who's the robot? As it relates to the father, he is distant. And really, in essence, he's got no love for the father, only a, the appearance of being the good son so that he could get the father's stuff. He's just going about it a different way. He's no different than the younger son at the beginning of the story. But what's the father's, and, and I think the father gets that, right? I mean, you, you, it all comes out here. But still, what's his answer? What's his response? You said it earlier. All that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Sons rejoice in what their father rejoices. It was fitting to rejoice in the father's grace. Um. The way this parable is set up, Jesus being kind of the, the primo storyteller here in Hebrew 
fashion. The way that it's set up, generally it would have eight stanzas and the eighth one would bring it to a conclusion. The younger son has eight stanzas. The older son has seven. It's not finished. It's not completed. We don't get a resolution to the older son's story. Um, Interesting. Is that in the Greek? That's in, well, that's just the way that in Greek, or if it was originally written in Aramaic, who knows. But the, the structure should be Hebrew. And so that, that would be um, the literary structure. Like we have couplets and we have, you know, their structure would be in a story like this to have eight stanzas. But here the second one just has seven. It doesn't finish. We don't know. And I guess there's really two responses, right? The, the, the son... And this isn't original with me. I'll just kind of throw this out. The son hearing the, the, the father's plea repents. You're right. I haven't loved you either. Can I have some, some of the calf? That's the I, I, yeah, we got, we, got the, <laughs> we got the thing going on. Everybody's crying at the end. Yeah. The music swells, you know. That would be nice. The Pharisees repented, heard this, and they're all crying too, you know. That would be great. That would be receiving the Father's joy. Another side to this, another possible response in the eighth stanza would be this. Upon hearing this from the Father, the Son is overcome with a sense of dishonor and picks up a rock and hits his Father in the head and repeatedly says, you must die, you are shameful, you are shameful, you are shameful. That would be the other side of that. And isn't that what happened? Let his blood be upon us. Right? In Matthew 27, 25, the people did exactly this. His blood be upon us and on our children. And Christ took the shame of it for us. The writer of Hebrews took it, uh, puts it this way. Hebrews 12.2 Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the shame, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He took on the shame for the Father's joy that is shown when one sinner repents. Are we not to reflect the Father's joy? Do we forgive joyfully do we, do we repent wholeheartedly, not as robots? Do we forgive joyfully, we for whom much is forgiven? What's that? We work too hard to get here. I think that's often the, the thing. And, and... On the repentance side, it's the same thing. Well, gosh, if I repented, I would look like a fool. 
but we don't do shame on our in our culture. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, sometimes I go for walks and I listen to Tripoli and one of the, his second songs. There are worse uses of your time. I'm just going to say. <laughs> the second song on one of his albums, I can't remember which one, is called um, Robot. And one of the lines is, I was born a robot as a baby. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about that when we're born into sin, we only have one option, and that's to continue sinning. Mm-hmm. And he said, he, you know, he gets his first order, uh, the first day old, and the, and the only thing is he was a robot. Mm-hmm. And he transformed into life or whatever. And yeah. Think about the older son being, you know, a robot in his actions. He, the only thing that he can do, assuming that he's not a believer, mm-hmm. is is to continue on on that path and to ultimately crucify mm-hmm. God, yeah, Christ on the cross, yeah. And um, that's that's a sad realization. I get that. I get that with unbelievers. You're right. What I'm, what I worry about though, is is sometimes I think in our circles we get very intellectual. We get very attuned to uh, how much we know, and working it out, I think sometimes really drives that same issue. I'm I'm glad that I'm not like other men, those Armenians, you know. I, I worry about. <laughs> <laughs> I worry about that happening. Not in a, not that we shouldn't study theology, not that we shouldn't rejoice in the glory of God's sovereignty, but that's the point. Rejoice in the glory of God's sovereignty. Um, puffy knowledge is windbag stuff. It's applied. Applied. Applied is where we see the truth of the gospel. What makes this really uh, hit home is this is all part of their family, like their brothers and their dad. Mm-hmm. This isn't a stranger coming wandering off the street. Right. Like because I think uh, it's easier for us to, like, there's a homeless person and you want to witness to them and, you're, oh, you know, please mm-hmm. help. But if it's somebody that's burned you over and over again, mm-hmm. there's no way you're going to forgive them again because they've burned you before. Right. And especially if they're part of your family and you've poured into them. And then they burn you, and uh, you're you're not gonna like who wants to who wants to forgive them? Yeah, yeah. If we don't do it. And an example of, of how to do that then, yeah. to to truly have compassion, to have the desire for someone to come back who has gone off, mm-hmm. and to be willing to shame ourselves and run after mm-hmm. them. I mean, that, that's sort of the picture here of what he's calling us to do. We're supposed to forgive the way he forgives. We're supposed to love the way he loves. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it calls for a sacrifice, not a, well, I'll accept it if they... If, if they do appropriate if they, groveling. If, if they come to me. Mm-hmm. But that, that's not the example that he gave. Yeah. Just a reminder. Right. So, so that's true for families. Um, how much more among us, right? How much more among those who are called out by grace, have nothing to bring to the cross, do we forgive each other that way? Do we seek forgiveness that way? Um, It's a reflection of the Father's joy. Do we think of repentance as a reflection of the Father's... That's an odd thing. That's entering into His joy. He provided it. What a joyous thing. 
that He provides a ground for us to forgive one another as He's forgiven us. To not do it's robotic. That's interesting. I've never thought of it that way. Maybe I just did. Why, maybe that's why it's so difficult for us to repent of our sins is because we have a faulty view of who God is. If we view Him as a robot that's just pointing His finger down, mm-hmm. just waiting for us to mess up to get the, you know, to reap you know, the effect of all of our sins first, yeah. him running to us and, and repentance is a response to him running running. Yeah. Us. Well, I, I think we've shunned John three sixteen too much. Mm-hmm. He he loved the world. He loved it. Loves it still. Daddy sent his son. Yeah, I mean, no matter how far away you run, God doesn't change. I mean he's not like, oh well gotta wait for him to come back. I mean, God's everywhere. God's there. Like, wherever you are, God's there. And he's always going to be infinitely compassionate, always going to be infinitely loving. And like all those characteristics that he that he has whenever you're like prostrate, praying with the, with the Bible open, play, playing hymns in the background, like that emotion that you get from God, like that overwhelming feeling, that all those characteristics are still there even when you're, you know. In the pig pen. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't change based on how we act. His response to us is consistent. If we're unrepentant, was it the Puritans used to say, law of the proud, grace of the humble. If we're unrepentant, then Jonah's prophecy stands, right? God's going to respond in discipline and judgment. But if we repent, his response is also consistent, that he runs hikes up his skirt and runs to a son who's returning. Um, good. But it, it is interesting that he didn't go he didn't go into the foreign country, but the son did have to come to the point of repentance. Yeah, he had to come to himself. Okay. I mean and, and start walking back. He did have to yeah. it, there is a responsibility sure. on our part to, to be broken. Yeah. And to be repentant. But God is always ready to forgive us when yeah. we get to yeah. that point. He brought low by a family that he can control, and who do you think controlled that family? God did. That was a gracious thing that he did to bring him low so that he would return. Good. Any anything else? I think also like just following out what Grant said about the character of God. You know, God being a Trinity is a distinct thing about Christianity, and uh, that means that God uh, isn't like Muslims uh, like, uh, say, mm-hmm. one God, mm-hmm. but yeah, He's a community, and, right? And has love within Himself. He doesn't. Yeah, if anybody, um, if anybody gets emotion in relationship. It's the it's the, um, the the one being in the universe who has community within himself. He lives in community, and and gets loving one another. You want to, um, you guys are readers. You want to spend some time talking about uh, reading through the love of God in His very nature. Uh, Jonathan Edwards once wrote a an un, it's called unpublished and yet it's published everywhere. The unpublished essay on the Trinity by Jonathan Edwards. And at the end, he's, he, he says, these are all speculative thoughts. You know, I don't even understand what I just said. And, and, you know, but the way he does it is the, the, 
the love between the Father, and the way he expresses that and describes it is pretty, pretty amazing. The love between the Father and the Son, and then the Spirit being involved in that is pretty... But still, he, he said, no, nah, we don't. Smartest guy, you know, deemed to be the, the, the smartest mind of, of American philosophy, religious thought, the whole thing. It's still like, I don't get the Trinity. Let's just, we better move on to just how we better live. <laughs> so, um, anyway, any, anything else? Good. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. And uh, I, I would note it's just 10.15. And uh, we have five minutes. All right. Father, we pray to be good sons and good daughters. That we would reflect the overwhelming beauty of your grace by joyfully forgiving one another, by joyfully seeking repentance from one another because of the gift that you've given us in Christ who took on the shame we should have borne, conquered our judgment, conquered our penalty, conquered our nature of robotic rebellion and brought us into the kingdom that that comes with a heart that wants to please you and wants to reflect you and wants to do rightly. And even though we're still shackled to this, what Paul calls the body of death, God, we want to look like Christ. And that involves joy and joyful forgiveness and extending grace to one another. Would you give us hearts that reflect your emotion, that reflect your Um, your forgiveness, your love, your grace from the heart and from the soul, that we would genuinely want to see good happen to each other and to those that we come in contact with because of your joy. We thank you that Christ bore the shame of the cross for the joy set before him, and invites us in to share his joy. We thank you for that in his name. Amen.